You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. The following is the third and final part of our three-part series on the intelligence impact and legacy of the attacks of September 11, 2001. Parts one and two are available on iTunes, Audioboom, and the Spy Museum website. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by two people, Mark Zaid and Brad Moss. Start with Brad Moss, who is a senior associate at the law office of Mark Zaid. He specializes in litigation on matters relating to national security, federal employment, and security clearance law, and the Freedom of Information Act and Privacy Act. In connection with his work on behalf of clients in the federal government, media and defense contracting industry, Mr. Moss has been quoted in articles for the Washington Post and Politico. A 2006 graduate of American University's Washington College of Law, Mr. Moss received his undergraduate degree from the GW University in 2003 with a major in international relations and a minor in peace studies. They didn't have peace studies when I went to school, but that's cool. <laughs> During his law school tenure, he co-founded the nonpartisan National Security and Law Society, Inc., an international nonprofit with chapters across the U.S. and the world. Prior to joining the practice as an associate in January 2007, Mr. Moss clerked for the National Security Archive. He has also served as Deputy Executive Director of the James Madison Project since June of 2007. Welcome, Brad. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Not a problem. Happy to help. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, which I think is really interesting, is that you began law school almost exactly two years after 9-11, and you were here as an undergrad in Washington, D.C. So as you're preparing for a career in national security law, how much of your law school education referenced the changes 9-11 brought to the field? Well, I would say it almost permeated everything. Uh, pretty much any discussion on international law, national security, foreign policy, any discussion of that all addressed the impact of 9-11 and how it had altered and modified both the way as a public in terms of how we viewed issues of secrecy, issues of civil liberties, and how the pendulum had swung, but also in terms of the various national security matters were going on around us. Um, you know, I started law school in 2003. We're talking the beginning of the Iraq War. We're talking after two years already in Afghanistan. So it was everything you did, any topic you addressed, 
human rights, uh, national security policy, all were impacted by 9-11, all were impacted by how the legislation and the attitudes towards how we should address national security policy had shifted after 9-11. And I used to teach at the university level, and I figure your professors had to be scrambling to figure out what all this meant. I mean, was there a lot of back-and-forth conversation? Was there a lot of trying to figure out as it went along? I know you weren't privy to a lot of the conversations at the professional level, but law school, like grad school, there's, it's different than when you're an undergrad. You're a little bit more involved in some of these uh, not-so-black-and-white nuances that you have at that level. Did you see people, did it evolve as you were there? I guess that's the good question. Yeah, you know, in, we went, during my tenure, and I was, you know, law school's three years, so it's 2003, I graduated in 06. You were there for the evolution of views on torture, views on extraordinary rendition. As, as these issues were becoming public knowledge, as leakers were emerging that were informing the public about just how far the U.S. government had taken some of these policies in their efforts, you know, whether or not, whether it was legal or not, and presumably in good faith to try to protect the American public, a lot of these discussions on how much was illegal in terms of interrogation methods, you know, we know them now as enhanced interrogation right. techniques. It was, you know, whether or not that was torture or not. But those debates were spilling into law school campuses across the country and no less in D.C. campuses right, in particular. Exactly, right, yeah. Because, of course, you know, yeah, everybody here was involved in, you know, aware of policy in one manner or another. A lot of people were interning or clerking on the Hill or at various agencies. So we're all very much immersed in it. That was everywhere in anything you did. Well, and as good as the D.C. law schools are, I imagine a lot of the students were here because they wanted to be involved in some kind of governmental job in the future. Yeah, whether a government or even on the other side of it in terms of there are a lot of who were going, planning to go into transparency or civil rights organizations. And it was just as relevant because this was the defining moment of, those, of, that, of that decade was how do we handle responding to what is a non-state actor, what, you know, individuals who don't have nice fancy uniforms on so you can identify them. They're individuals amongst the populace. So how did prisoner of war issues arise, you know, uh, sorry, how did prisoner of war uh, protections apply and how do we determine what, who can and can't be surveilled and what, to what extent we can interrogate them without having to Mirandize right. them when we, got, when we found Americans? I mean, if everybody remembers, you know, it's 15 years now later, but everybody remembers John Walker Lynn, who was the American found in uh, Afghanistan, part of the Taliban. There was a huge legal fight over to what extent did he have to be provided protections as an American citizen, which you would normally think of as the Fifth Amendment, and you'd think of, you know, Miranda. But he's also found in a battlefield working for a terrorist organization. To what extent can you interrogate him without a lawyer present? So, yeah, that spilled into everything we did. I was trying to think about how the best way to structure this conversation so it's not a complete free-for-all aimless discussion. <laughs> and I thought perhaps the best way might be to work our way through some of the most fundamental freedoms we demand as Americans and, and, and how 9-11 impacted these. And I really want to start with the, the, the one that is number one in the Bill of Rights for a reason. You know, that's the First Amendment. Because, of course, we're talking about a, uh, a war on terror. Uh, I hate that phrase, but that's what we use. And essentially, this is a... a, a war that is heavily uh, affected by Islam, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's as much as, as we can debate about what words to use and about the fact that, yes, all Muslims aren't terrorists, a lot of people that we are fighting and a lot of people that we're worried about are uh, followers of Islam. So I, I, we're supposed to be protected by the First Amendment, freedom of religion and freedom of assembly or association. Do you, did you see this dramatically change after 9-11 where you saw people who were being considered guilty by association with certain groups and kind of looking at Muslims as, as the enemy overall. 
Oh, absolutely. And you can think of it, it would happen both at the federal level and at the local level. I mean, it's, there's infamous uh, court litigation between the NYPD and various Muslim organizations in New York City over a lot of the profiling of, mo- uh, profiling of Muslims, uh, Muslim Americans in New York City and the surveillance of mosques. Uh, you had the federal government. I mean, there's, we know now, we, we knew for years, and now we even know now more about the extent of the U.S. government's surveillance operations within the United States over the last 15 years. We know about the extent to which there was warrantless surveillance, the extent to which under uh, various provisions, sorry, Section 215 of the FISA Act and Section 702 of the Patriot Act, which were telephone and Internet data collection provisions, the extent to which the uh, U.S. government was able to collect data on various Muslim Americans living within the United States and who they were talking to. And so, yeah, so everything that the U.S. government could do to increase its access to information, increase the extent to which it knew what everyone was doing, particularly certain groups that were of concern, they took steps, at least particularly in the early days, to do. Now, over time, you saw certain parts get reined in to an right. extent with legislation. You know, originally it was the Bush administration with its executive orders and executive-run programs. It got reformed in 2008, 2007 to be somewhat run more legislatively. We've had more, some more recent reforms in light of some of the leaks from Edward Snowden. But that very much permeated everything, and particularly in the First Amendment, particularly in terms of freedom of association. I mean, these are Muslim Americans are still Americans. They still have every constitutional right as I do as a Jewish American, as anyone who's Christian would have as a Christian American. And so this became a very hotly debated and hotly litigated topic of just how far could local, state, and federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies take it in terms of how they profiled and uh, surveilled these various individuals. Well, it was a guilt by association idea. I mean, I'm a Cold War historian, so it reminds me a lot of the early Cold War where people were given loyalty tests and yep. if they knew a communist back in the 30s they were instantaneously under suspicion and it seems like uh, and I'm not trying to be a bleeding heart here I think empirically it seems like being Muslim there's instantaneous suspicion yep. uh, and you see that certainly on planes where I guess recently uh, a Muslim professor who had math equations in front of working on the plane. Uh, the, pe- the passengers got freaked out, thought it was Arabic. Sigh. Uh, and, you know, that is even permitting 15 years after 9-11. Yeah. Well, you see it even in the presidential election. I mean, in the wake of a lot of these attacks in Paris, in San Bernardino, and the one that just happened a few days ago uh, in New York City, you've heard Donald Trump in particular talk about the need for surveillance of mosques, the need for, I think the way he described it, and I'm probably butchering how he described it, of people in those communities needing to inform law enforcement. And to be fair, they do a lot. A right. lot of the... information that law enforcement, both federal, state, and local, gets about local jihadis, people who would want to do harm to the United States, come from the local Muslim American communities because they don't want it in their community. So there is, I mean, so there's both an element to which there has been cooperation, but there's also an element of distrust at this point. This is 15 years on. Muslim American community is very well aware of the extensive efforts to surveil and uh, oversee, I don't want to say oversee, interfere would be a very poor you know, pedestrian right. term to use, basically, to interfere into the way they've lived their lives and to find out, trying to find those amongst their community who would want to do harm without, finding a, without violating the individual constitutional rights of everybody else. So th- let me ask you about this, because there seems like to be a legal catch-22 when it comes to cases like the Chelsea bombing, the man Rouhani, apparently the story came out today that his father had called him a terrorist a couple of years ago. Now, it sounds like it was somewhat in anger and just, you know, father-son kind of thing. 
But there are times when the FBI or, or local law enforcement is told that somebody is sketchy or somebody potentially could be a terrorist. And their hands are tied to a degree because of the same kind of constitutional rights we're talking about. Because you can't instantaneously consider somebody a bad guy and surveil. Probable cause is not just somebody thinking that you're sketchy looking. Um, so where do we fall on that? I mean, how do you how do you how do you mitigate the potential threat while at the same time making sure that somebody is not being targeted for unfair surveillance and unfair prosecution? That remains the difficult balance any democracy will always face because this is in Russia, this is in China. We can't lock up people just for looking the wrong way or just for appearing sketchy. And with even with the father's comment to the FBI a few years ago, I think it was the Washington Post or CNN, I just saw it a few moments ago, said that he had recanted it later mm -hmm. on, which almost certainly would have played into the FBI's evaluation. FBI gets all kinds of reports like that all the time, and this is something that, you know, it's a level of nuance that not everybody can always grasp because it's not easy. It doesn't make into a soundbite. But they'll get reports, and they have to evaluate the credibility of it. They have to figure out, okay, even if it's true, even if this father believes his son is a jihadi, what do we do now? If he hasn't done anything else, if he hasn't broken any laws, if he hasn't gone anywhere, there's no, no legal provision that says you can be thrown in jail for having views that the U.S. government's evil. As much as you or I might think that's horrible, that's still it's still a fundamental protection of the First Amendment. You can have views saying, I don't like the U.S. government, and the First Amendment protects your right to still express that. The government can't just throw you or me into jail for that. If it could, we'd look a lot more like Vladimir Putin's Russia than we right. would the United States of America. Well, let me ask you about another First Amendment issue, and that's freedom of the press. The Obama administration is now notorious for being the harshest administration on members of the press who have worked with whistle, whistleblowers, leakers, uh, very infamously put people in jail, uh, members of the press, journalists, for not revealing sources and other things like that. Is this a crackdown that is a response to 9-11, or is this something that is uh, a response to social media, a response to new in technologies that allow for easier whistleblowing. I, I know, very open-ended question. I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I'm wondering yeah. what you think about... So, you know, so, and so let's make something clear. Zero journalists have been put in jail under the Obama administration. Exactly one was put in jail during the Bush administration, and that was, I believe, Judith Miller, and that was because she refused to respond to a court order forcing her or ordering her to reveal the name of a source. She later did reveal the name when the source said, yes, you can reveal my name. There have been no journalists prosecuted for doing their job. In the United States. There's been no journalist. Glenn Greenwald can come to and from the United States despite all of the leaks he published from Edward Snowden. He's never been jailed. Barton Gelman's over at the Washington Post. As far as I can tell, he's still living free. You know, none of them have been put in jail for this. The crackdown has been on the leakers. Right. And to that extent, to the extent to which it's, it's occurred, it's been more, at least in my you know, humble opinion, because the government's gotten better at finding them. Um, even with all the great advancements in encryption and technology and uh, tools like secure drop that a lot of the journalists are using now for people to leak information to them government's got very good at tracking down who dropped sorry who leaked these documents to which journalist and that's why you've had these people get prosecuted um i think the both the bush and obama administrations in the wake of 9-11 have done very little to fix whistleblower problems um the process is a very legally deficient one as far as i'm concerned there is certainly a process and certain people have not gone through it Chelsea Manning never went through it. Edward Snowden never went through it. Um, and so as far as I'm concerned, they deserve whatever criminal charges get leveled against them. 
but even for people who do want to bring up concerns properly and legally it's a largely administrative process it's largely subject to mid-level ma- uh, sorry mid-level management interference and retaliation if no one's watching there's no real right to judicial review at the moment um, and the agencies can invoke national security exemptions under the existing uh, procedures if needs be to squash the whole thing and that you know people like Snowden will always still exist so long as these procedures are never fixed because it'll always be the incentive to say to hell with the system it doesn't work xyz person got prosecuted even when they tried to do it right so i'll just dump all the documents to a glenn greenwald type person and let the chips fall where they may well you see that i mean snowden called out thomas drake and said if there was no thomas drake there'd be no edward snowden i for what it's worth right we're both making the same face right now for what it's worth um that Speaking of Snowden, let's look at some things involving the Fourth Amendment, because I think that's a natural segue here. Uh, it seems like this may have been the heaviest hit of, of all the, the, the freedoms we enjoy uh, by 9-11. The idea of, talk about Section 215 also already, um, at the time, and now some of this has been changed, but at the time it enabled the government to obtain what they called any tangible things that could potentially be used to fight terror, which have been like library records, healthcare records, internet, you know, like logging uh, information, documents, papers. This is something that I feel, I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I've done a little uh, historical research on what the founders intended. That's a kind of fancy phrase you all like to throw around. They didn't, I don't think they intended this to be something that the government could do. In fact, I think it's kind of why the Fourth Amendment's there in the first place. Right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's the never-ending question of what did the founders intend and could the founders have, inten- could have envisioned this type of technology? I mean, founders wrote the Fourth Amendment in 1770 or 1783, whatever it was. Wow, I'm failing legal history here. <laughs> 1783, along those lines of the Constitution, they were working at a time everything was on paper. Yeah. You know, encryption was a, you know, we had, they had codes, but it was very rudimentary compared to what we have now today. So what you had in the uh, post-9-11 era was, uh, you know, the Bush administration was trying to figure, figure out, okay, the Chinese wall between law enforcement and intelligence is going to come down. We've got to find these terrorists, especially the ones who are here. How do we do it? And they took it to the absolute legal, you know, wall of what could they possibly get away with from, in court. That got reined in. So when Snowden came about with his leaks, you had what was something that, uh, programs that were authorized or at least that were considered or contemplated by legislation. Now, there was a later uh, appellate court that said it went beyond what the legisl- legislation contemplated. That's fine. Okay, I can live with that. But it was something that was based on legislation passed by Congress that was overseen by the relevant congressional committees and that had been approved by the judicial, sorry, by the legislative, legislatively created FISA court, which is meant to specifically address these types of matters that are very uh, closely held in their national security matters, and which was created in the wake of the Nixon era, you know, right. scandals and how surveillance was conducted by the FBI in the '60s and the '70s. So, when you come to that circumstance, were there legitimate reasons for someone like Mr. Stone to come forward on those narrow issues? Sure, and I wish, to this day, I wish he had just come forward. It didn't have to be to me. It didn't have to be to my firm. It could have been to any number of lawyers in this town who are more than well qualified who could have raised those specific concerns within the whistleblower process to say, I think you've gone too far here. I think you're failing to meet the requirements of the statute or the law here and try to fix it that way. When it, with what Mr. Snowden did, unfortunately, 
involved so many number of things that had nothing to do with civil liberties, had nothing to do with the Fourth Amendment. And that's why his name, I believe, gets tarnished, despite some of the good I would credit him for having done, because he leaked so many things that had nothing to do with American civil liberties. Yeah, let me let me actually ask you about timing when it comes to the Snowden releases, because uh, as we get further and further away from 9-11 and further and further away from major attacks, and I'm not downgrading what happened in Paris or San Bernardino or Orlando or now in Chelsea, but these weren't 9-11s, right? These weren't attacks that changed everything. As we get further and further away, you see that pendulum swing back toward the more, we want more privacy, we want more transparency side of the spectrum, which you wouldn't have gotten on 9-12-2001. And I'm wondering if Snowden, from your opinion, from the legal side, would have gotten the same positive response as he did 10 years after 9-11, if it had been a year after 9-11. And the reason I bring this up is because there seemed to be a legal victory lap when the appellate courts struck down some of the, the, the programs that Snowden released. I don't even think that would have happened in 2002 and 2003. I mean, because the courts are as human as the rest of us. I think, I mean, this again, my opinion, 10 years after 9-11, there's a lot less hang-wringing about the next attack happening. I know it's an open-ended question. I know it's one you weren't probably prepared for, just kind of out of the blue. But I'm well, wondering what you think. Well, no, it's a very, it's a very legitimate one. I mean, think about the day after 9/11. I remember walking down the street. I was uh, junior in college. There were tanks and yeah. Humvees on the street corners. You didn't see that after Orlando. You don't see that after San Bernardino or after Chelsea. So no, if if, if someone like Edward Snowden had come forward in the initial year or two after 9/11 and said uh, and exposed something like uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the program, Prism. Or no, Stella, not Prism. Stellar Wind. Stellar or, Wind. Yeah. Thank you. I wanted to call it Stormwind. I'm like, I know yeah. that's not wrong. So yeah. So if someone like Snowden had come forward, tried to expose Stellar Wind in 2002, 2003, I think it would have been met with a largely negative reaction because that's just where the country's perception was and where its views were at the time. So yeah, I mean, 15, you know, 12, 15 years after 9/11, even with the constant threat from terrorism, I think there was a realization that there could be some more balance struck so i think it was a better timing for someone like him now we do know that people came forward early on thomas drake will Binney, all those did come forward but to their credit they went internally to raise their concerns and i always you know snowden always talks about thomas drake and how he got prosecuted to be very clear thomas drake was not prosecuted for what he disclosed to congress he was he was prosecuted for what was allegedly classified information that he gave to a journalist which would have nothing to do with whether or not he had separately gone to congress let me shift to uh something that we uh we talk about here a lot at the the spy museum that's due process and the reason we talk about it is uh up until recently we had a temporary exhibit in our lobby about a man named morton storm and morton storm was this danish fundamentalist who kind of re-came to jesus for lack of a better word became an atheist and worked for cia and he was very good friends, very close with Anwar al-Awlaki. And I'm bringing that up because due process is an interesting conversation to have since 9-11. Because Al-Awlaki and actually the man killed with Al-Awlaki, Samir Khan, were both U.S. citizens. And from everything I've ever learned about the Fifth Amendment is due process means you get indicted, Mirandized, tried in front of a jury of your peers. The government goes through these hoops, necessary hoops, and then finally can take away your life, liberty, or property. That doesn't seem to have happened here the way we traditionally think about it. How have the laws changed? What, what, I know there have been Justice Department memos that came out and said, here's why we did it. What was the legal basis behind what they decided to 
use lethal action against American citizens. Well, if you look actually at the constitutional amendment and what you described was the, I would say, the layperson concept and understanding of it based off just what you learn in school when you're growing up and what you see on TV, you think of law and order. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, my lawyerly <laughs> skills. It's Jack, it's Jack McCoy. Jack McCoy, maybe some SVU thrown in, but for the most part, that's where I'm coming from. Understood. But the actual text is far more limited and leaves it a lot more to disc- the discretion of the government than people realize. It's a vague t- term, vague concept of due process of law. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is where lawyers get paid the big bucks because we can define it however we want. And that's where you especially saw this in the aftermath of 9-11, and you've seen this particularly with the drone program with the, the Obama administration, is how far can we take this? How far can we stretch that law and still have a viable basis for claiming it? And so what the Obama administration concluded, and I believe it was based off prior conclusions from the Bush administration, was so long as we've internally done everything we can to conclude that there's no other viable means to secure this person to bring him back for trial, that they pose an imminent threat, whatever is an imminent threat is up to executive discretion in this context, an imminent threat to the United States, we have the right under the Constitution of the President's authority to strike and kill him with a drone strike, and the Fifth Amendment doesn't prohibit it. Is that an accurate interpretation? Again, that's why lawyers make the big bucks. Is there anything legally that stops the president from saying, I am an imminent threat to the United States and droning me as I walk back to my house in Capitol Hill? Other than collateral damage, worried about... <laughs> yes, and there it's called, it's in a Supreme Court case, um, X-Ray Milligan, which was, from, which was from the Civil War, which was the idea of you could, uh, the, the military, sorry, the U.S. military had prosecuted certain individuals in, I think, I want to say it was Indiana, um, and they had not done it through a civilian trial, claiming that because there was a civil war going on, they couldn't be forced to do so. Supreme Court struck it down. So, yes, you in the United States, you could be apprehended. The FBI can roll up here right now and take you and put okay. you in a federal courthouse. But someone like Alawaki sitting overseas and God knows where in a desert, surrounded by who knows how many people, it wasn't viable to secure him without posing unnecessary risk to U.S. personnel and in a manner that you could actually guarantee securing him. Therefore, the viable alternative, assuming there was an imminent threat, as opposed to him just running his mouth, but a vi- an imminent threat was to use the drone, drone strike. Why not just try him in absentia? Just get 12 D.C. people, have a prosecution, and then a defense lawyer, and then... That raises all kinds of Sixth Amendment and Fifth okay. Amendment concerns. Because then he can't respond. Right. Okay, you tried him in absentia. Who's representing his interests? Who's the lawyer on the other side representing him? Has that person, has that lawyer ever talked to him? Does that lawyer know what his views or Alwaki's uh, defenses would be? Obviously, he can't testify in person. He has, he's losing his right to confront his accusers. I could, any lawyer half my size could raise a slew of Fifth and Sixth Amendment uh, challenges to that. So you just kill him. That became the decision, and that, and again, this is where. Law, uh, sorry, Constitution and amendments written over two centuries ago, balancing that against modern technology right. and, where, and how do you draw the balance. And it's easy to claim that there's a simple answer or solution. There's not. It's a very nuanced a- argument. It brings in a lot of policy, morality, ethical questions that people have to resolve with, and it brings up questions of oversight. I personally have no problem with the government having to provide far more detail to Congress, particularly to the overseeing committees, such as the Intel committees, about the circumstances in which this is done. I certainly don't want to see drone strikes and American citizens becoming a common thing overseas. Um, But if the question is, can they legally do it? The answer is maybe. 
Yeah, and I, I don't want to come across defending Alaki. He's a he's a horrible, horrible man that deserved to get dead. But I just think there's really interesting legal questions about this. Um, we have another interesting legal question that just happened. We talked about Rahami also. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who says whatever he feels like now, which is fantastic, the South Carolina senator, has come out and said we shouldn't Mirandize him. We shouldn't give him the legal protections that he has as an American citizen, that he's given those up somehow. Uh, is there precedent at all for arresting an American citizen on American soil and then not treating them? As though they're an American. It's an unresolved legal issue. So there's two factors come in play. So one is uh, the 2012 uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which a lot of people were concerned um, gave the president authority to detain an American citizen without trial and without due process. Second Circuit uh, struck that struck down the challenge, saying nope, it doesn't give the president that authority. But that was, that was simply on a question of standing, saying the people who were challenging it didn't have the authority to challenge it because the law didn't give that authority in the first place. Um, that doesn't bind the president's hand. The president can say, I construe it differently. But that was the way the court construed it. The separate issue is the prosecution from the Bush era that, tra that overlapped with the Obama era, sorry, the Obama era, which was the Padilla case. Jose Padilla mm -hmm. was arrested, I want to say, at my native Chicago O'Hare airport was an American citizen, was originally being prosecuted in a military court and eventually got transferred over to civilian court where he was later convicted and I believe is in jail somewhere. But unresolved from that litigation was, was it lawful in the first place to have tried him in a military court? So the question, you know, Lindsey Graham's raised his uh, claim saying we should be doing this, we should be uh, interrogating Rahami without Mirandizing him. There's a legal exception and it was called the Quarrels I'm going to try to spell it right now. The Quarles, as a Supreme Court case from years ago, um, exception to the Fifth Amendment Miranda requirement for public safety. But beyond that, trying to, say, interrogate him in a military context, it's an unresolved legal issue. Trying to designate an American citizen as an enemy combatant would raise all number of constitutional mm -hmm. concerns and questions. So I want to wrap this up by asking you a broad uh, kind of constitutional law 101 question about the power of the executive, because it seems like in the last 15 years, starting with the Bush administration, and, and a lot of people uh, thought Obama was going to shift this back a little bit, but he's even taken it further. The power of the executive has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, it was reined in historically after the Nixon administration, but 9-11 has really opened the floodgates, where uh, it's almost, it's a com combination, my question is a combination of the power of the executive over the legislature, but also a kind of a Tenth Amendment argument, the idea the federal government taking almost sole priority over things that were considered state, like border protection, other things like that. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, in the last 15 years when it comes to that? Sure. I mean, this is also a shifting balance amongst the equilibrium that you always will see and will continue to see for the rest of your and my lifetime. There's no, you know, some people will have very definitive black and white boilerplate views of how the Constitution should be read and how certain authorities of different branches, you know, the executive versus the legislative versus the states should reside. It doesn't actually work that way in practice. You, as you noted, you know there was the imperial presidency leading up to the Nixon administration, and then it got reined in for a couple decades. You had Carter, you had, you know, you had Ronald Reagan expanded a bit, but then it kind of receded back with uh, Bush one and mm -hmm. with uh, Clinton one, possibly depending on what happens in November. It kind of receded back, but then we had 9/11, and you had George W. Bush who decided he was going to re-expand some of the authority that. 
the executive had been weakened to an extent in terms of its authority to go do things on its own. And so he took uh, took that on his hand, uh, sorry, took that upon himself to do, and it's been continued to an extent under President Obama. And I think a lot of people had this misconception that because of his background, because of his time as an adjunct professor in constitutional law, that he would necessarily view things differently. Didn't necessarily, I, I never really understood that concept because just because he happened to have that background didn't necessarily mean that he didn't agree with President Bush on certain nuances and aspects of executive authority. And I think what you saw, especially with Obama, was someone who may have viewed it differently as a member of the legislature and then became the president yeah. and not only had the authority now as the president but also was privy to a lot of information that no one outside the executive branch is privy to and took a different view on what not only could be done but what should be done. I think you will always see that balance go back and forth, shift back and forth between the executive and the legislature, and also between the federal government and the states. You know, especially after 9/11, a lot of local matters of uh, protection for uh, the industrial grids and all those things became issues of okay, do we need to federalize this in a sense of there has to it's a national security concern because a terrorist could knock out of the electrical grid in New York City and take out the financial sector and cause chaos in the economy. So things that you would have always thought of, oh, that's the you know county of XYZ in New York handling that. Well, no, now there's a national security aspect to it. Now the feds have to be involved as well in that process. That's always going to shift back and forth, and I don't think you're ever going to find a period in time where it stops shifting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Michael Hayden actually talks about the oh shit moment when a presidential candidate starts learning stuff that they didn't know when they were running and all of a sudden that they uh, they say, ooh, maybe my position during the campaign didn't make a lot of sense. And, and the most, I think the most famous in history of that is what we all remember from uh, the Cold War, the bomber gap. Yeah. You know, you think of the 1960 election, uh, Ted, uh, sorry, JFK is talking about a bomber gap throughout the entire election. Oh, my God, we're behind the Russians and the bomber and having bombers to uh, uh, launch strikes. He becomes president and finds out there was no bomber gap. But Richard Nixon, who had been the vice president, was privy to that, wasn't permitted to say it right, yeah. because it was classified. Yeah, no, that's like the one the one redeeming value of Richard Nixon, as far you know, from my perspective, other than the foreign policy stuff, was that he kept his mouth shut. I mean, that would mm-hmm. it probably lost on the election too. So you know, I would say without question, you know, even even with the the help of my native Chicago and, say, and, and, and ballot and ballot stuffing in 1960, yeah. um, no, I would say absolutely. If Richard Nixon had run his mouth as he probably could have at that point in time and said, "No, there isn't a bomber gap," and here's how I know so, it would have undercut a lot of what Kennedy was saying. But absolutely, and that's very much you cannot understand the enormity of responsibility of that office until you truly are there. You get a sense of it with those briefings that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are getting now. Until you are the president, you can't fathom the enormity of issues. Red Moss is a senior associate at the law office of Mark Zaid. You can follow him on Twitter where he is very active, picking fights <laughs> with people on Twitter. Everyone. Yeah, it's it's quite entertaining. Um, thanks, Brad, for taking the time to talk to us here at the Spy Museum. Absolutely. Happy to do so. Let me tell you a little about ZipRecruiter. This is a company that was founded by four guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. We experience this all the time here at the Spy Museum. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. And we do attract the best people. But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time. Time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? 
Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top sites. And now you can. ZipRecruiter distributes jobs to 100 plus of the most visited job boards, websites, and social networks on the internet. They're always adding more job boards and sources of job secret traffic to expand the audience for your job postings. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to these 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com first. So now we're talking to Mark Zaid, who is the managing partner of the law office of Mark Zaid, which makes a lot of sense, I would suppose. He specializes in litigation and lobbying on matters relating to international transactions, torts and crimes, national security, foreign sovereign and diplomatic immunity, defamation, and the Freedom of Information and Privacy Acts. Through his practice, Mr. Zaid often represents former current federal employees, intelligence and military officers, whistleblowers, and others who have grievances who have been wronged by agencies of the United States government or foreign governments, as well as members of the media. He has been named as a Washington, D.C. super lawyer every year since he was profiled in 2009. Does that come with a super suit with tights and you know, underoos. underoos? As well as best lawyer by Washingtonian Magazine for his national security work in 2009, 2011, 2013, and 2015. So it, this is issued biannually in case you're wondering why he was slacking during the even years. Kind of the anti-San Francisco giants going on here. Mark is also the executive director and founder of the James Madison Project, a Washington, D.C.-based organization with the primary purpose of educating the public on issues relating to intelligence gathering and operations, secrecy policies, national security, and government wrongdoing. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here. It's my pleasure, Vince. Uh, I want to point the audience to the fact that you've done one of these before. I guess it was three or four years ago, right after the Snowden leaks, three years ago with Snowden leaks broke. So if uh, you like what you hear, go back and listen to that other one uh, that was very pinpointed toward a specific event, but certainly worth listening to. Um, I wanted to have you and Brad, who we've talked to already, here discuss how 9-11 have changed things in the last 15 years from a legal perspective. Um, despite looking younger than I do, you've actually been working in the field of national security for several decades now, which is annoying as hell. Many of us, once we got past the initial shock of the attack, begin immediately to assess how 9-11 would impact our lives. For me, I just left the military a month earlier, so I was thinking about what my former friends in the first cab were about to go and do. Did you immediately understand that this would be a game changer within the world of national security law? Was that instantaneously obvious that things were going to change after 9-11? I think to all of us who were certainly adults, I mean, obviously anyone who had or was of an age who can remember things, will remember what happened that day. But for those of us who were adults and in certain fields, I was already practicing law for almost a decade at that time. We knew there's going to be a lot of changes that are going to happen. I mean, the world changed with 9-11, whether it's from a legal standpoint, a policy standpoint, a humanity standpoint. Everything was going to be different. The question really is going to be, or was and still is, is how a balance was going to be reached between particularly as technology advances, as the fear of terrorism or other type of state intervention increases, and protection of civil liberties. 
And we've seen historically from looking back at past conflicts or past threats or concerns, so not necessarily a war like World War II, which had a significant impact on, say, Japanese Americans who were interred, uh, versus what happened during the Cold War, where there's not an actual conflict, but the communist Red Scare and how individuals were targeted merely because someone voiced an opinion and sometimes deliberately uh, false that they such a person was a member of the Communist Party and that person would lose their job or right. be ostracized from Hollywood or whatever it might be. So I, I think, quite frankly, as an overall theme, the U.S. government should get a lot of credit for how it has been reserved in the last 15 years, uh, which doesn't mean there were things done that shouldn't have been done or should have been done differently or fairly can be criticized. But if you compare previous events in our history and the reaction and the severity of the reaction, I don't think we've suffered that much overall. Well, you're putting this, uh, to kind of push back a little bit, you're putting this a bit in historical hindsight, and I'm asking you to, of course, so it's not fair for me to criticize you. Would we be saying the same thing in 06 or 05 when we hadn't pushed back some of the provisions of the Patriot Act the way we have, that we, if we hadn't uh, begun to change and to shift the pendulum back to where probably it should be, uh, some of the uh, overreaches, for lack of a better word, of the early post 9-11 world. I mean, I think of the fact we, I talked with to Brad about the idea that even today, there's still significant First Amendment issues when it comes to guilt by association, about freedom of religion, being a Muslim, about being targeted or being being held as suspicious because of your religion. Uh, that doesn't seem to be getting a hell of a lot better. And maybe that's not the government's fault. Uh, but profiling is not going anywhere, certainly anytime soon. And regardless of what side you come down on in these presidential elections, there's been some pretty harsh uh, rhetoric against Muslim Americans, right? These aren't, we're not talking about Al-Qaeda. We're talking about Muslims here in the United States, whether it's uh, looking at what they wear or they're not worshiping the right way or anything like that. I, maybe that's not 9-11. Maybe there's a causality issue here. But uh, do you think that there have been real issues when it comes to these two First Amendment rights, religion and association or assembly. So I think if we look back a decade, there, there's no doubt there was a very healthy criticism of some of what the government had initiated post 9-11. And it was far more in full force at that time. And there have been procedures and policies that have been scaled back since that time. So yes, from a historical standpoint, I think things are better than they were a decade ago. Uh, when I look back from a historical standpoint overall, I, I think I compare it to, I don't think we were as extreme as we have been in other periods of time, or it has lasted as long. I think we, cool, we had a much quicker cooling down period. Now that said, there's a number of issues that we could identify where there's still serious problems, some of which go to this guilt by association such as challenges to the no-fly list, uh, which is still very problematic involving the TSA and or the terrorist watch list mm -hmm. as the two most prominent that jumped to my mind. There, there still, although there are mechanisms now in place officially to try and challenge that, they are incredibly difficult. They lack transparency. And just from, forget substantively difficult, even just procedurally difficult, in getting a lawyer, the costs that might be associated right. with that. And we've seen lots of examples where it was 
either guilt by association, unfairly so, or even just mistaken identity. I, I remember back in the day, going back a decade or so, uh, a friend, their one-year-old child was on the no-fly list because obviously they had the same right. name as someone who was suspected of being on a problematic list uh, of whatever radicalization uh, that might have been attributed to that person. Uh, so there's there's definitely things. You know, First Amendment is always, I think, somewhat of a difficult caveat to look. I think in many ways, having participated in a zillion Facebook fights with people over a variety of issues where they'll start shouting, you know, I have a right to say this, right. etc. I think people for one thing, have a misunderstanding of what the First Amendment means and the scope of it. Right. The First Amendment applies to the inability of the government or the prohibition on the government to infringe on your First Amendment rights, not on any other individuals or entities in a private sector. Right. It begins, Congress shall make no law. I mean, right. it's, it's not you're not allowed to stop anybody from saying anything they want to. Yeah. And I had to correct so many people who you know come out and say something whether horrific or just contrary to what you know we might believe whoever's Facebook page it is and say look you don't I'm sorry you don't have a right on Facebook to say this and either Facebook can ban you uh, or I can ban you off my Facebook page and block you now re the ramifications could be you lobby Facebook and you if Facebook is is doing something we've had some issues with Facebook for example on about anti-Semitism and its use by terrorists, actually, or at least radicals, in fomenting their views, their ideological views. Same with Twitter. Mm -hmm. Now, those companies can take a stand and say, you know what, look, here's my policy. That's not the government doing that. And I don't think we've seen much in the way in the last 15 years from a First Amendment standpoint, and there's many aspects of the First Amendment, but from a speech standpoint, at least, mm -hmm. I, I don't think we've seen a lot where unlike the First World War right. and the Espionage Act, which is obviously still in a uh, – can suffer a lot of criticism today, but back when it was first enacted in 1917, it actually had a First Amendment component that if you said anything that could be interpreted as hostile to American allies, you could be prosecuted, and people were. And this podcast you mentioned that I spoke about with your predecessor in 2013 about the legal ramifications of Snowden, I mentioned this one great example that I always cite to where there was actually a filmmaker prosecuted by the U.S. government for airing a documentary on the Revolutionary War where the United Kingdom was, of course, our enemy as we broke from it as the parent. And because Great Britain was our ally in World War I, <laughs> It apparently put Great Britain in a bad light, and that individual was actually prosecuted and sentenced to prison. Now, those provisions right. of that Espionage Act were repealed within a few years because obviously the backlash from it was tremendous, and that was just unbelievably ridiculous that they actually went that far. But that was this you know, kickback, knee-jerk reaction to what was happening in World War I, the Great War. Now... Hopefully, I'd like to think we learned from those examples as we did from the incarceration of the Japanese in right. World War II that we didn't go to that extent after 9-11. Well, there was a conversation about it that was very short, and I think people said, no, we can't do that. So it's certainly positive movements in that, that direction. Let me ask you about one that's a little less, well, I think it's still fraught with controversy, but maybe a little more straightforward in the First Amendment, and that's the Fourth Amendment. 
idea of, of search and seizure. This is where a lot of privacy is not explicitly spelled out in the Constitution. A lot of people place part of the privacy argument here, Ninth Amendment as well. But you look at stuff like when Section 215 has fled its full power, talking about the government having the right to look at your what you check out from the library and what you're surfing online, your healthcare records. These things seem to be uh, an extraordinary overreach of government power. Uh, now they've been curtailed somewhat. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about uh, you know how that uh, mel- kind of jived with the Fourth Amendment? Well, were they were. I mean, these are not people. Let me let me let me give you one more aside before you, I throw it to you. Even people on the left uh, who are reasonable people aren't going to say Bush and his administration were anti-America. They were trying to destroy the Constitution. They were certainly acting within what they believed to be constitutional provisions. From my perspective and from other people's perspective, it seems difficult to argue that this is constitutional under the Fourth Amendment. What was the analysis behind this, if you could lay that out for us? So I do think there have been examples where the U.S. government has overreached from a search and seizure, and it's, it's usually more of a, of a search than a seizure aspect when we're talking about the monitoring uh, mass-scale surveillance uh, since 9-11. Now, some of it, though, in a positive light looking at it, unlike World War II, where up to the Supreme Court was somewhat complicit in sanctifying the actions of the executive branch. Again, let's say the Japanese-Americans internment that was sanctioned, actually, when legal challenges were made to it. Korematsu is that the case? Right, up at the, as one of them, up at the Supreme Court. And curfews, for example, example, were challenged, and they all lost. Whereas here in the aftermath of 9-11, there were numerous cases that went up to the Supreme Court, and obviously lower courts, too, where the courts ruled in favor of protecting civil liberties. Some of the detainees down at Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, with respect to their habeas corpus challenges to their uh, continued detention, whether they could, uh, in fact, have a challenge at all. Uh, Surveillance issues, there was a case a few years ago uh, where, in fact, Justice Scalia had held that there had been an unlawful surveillance because of the use of infrared or other type of technological advances to look inside people's homes. Now, I think the bigger problem with respect to, tech, with respect to surveillance, frankly, in the last 15 years, is not as much, although it's part of it, of course, this press or quest to challenge terrorists or spies or the like. It's been the advancement of technology that has caused significant problems to the old analysis of whether or not a search and seizure or seizure was constitutional under the Fourth Amendment. If we look at, for example, the 215 program that Edward Snowden concretely revealed, because frankly there were numerous people talking about it before he came forward, but no one had documentation, so it wasn't entirely new, at least not the discussion. But, you know, this issue as to whether or not it's constitutional under the Fourth Amendment still remains an open question. There has been only one district court judge that has ruled it to be unconstitutional here, Judge Leon here in the Washington, D.C. area. Every other judge that at least I can think of, about two dozen in all, 
have ruled the program to be constitutional. Now, what the Second Circuit did was ruled that they had exceeded their statutory authority granted to them by Congress so that it was an unlawful surveillance program, an unlawful search and seizure. But the issue about it is still an open question because there hasn't been a case brought up to the Supreme Court to decide whether Smith v. Maryland, which is a 1979 decision, which allowed a pen register without a warrant, which was monitoring the metadata of an individual's phone to check and see if this one person who kept calling this woman was the actual person who had burglarized her home, that that was decided to be constitutional on the basis that you give up your rights when you convey information to a third party. And that premise is still exactly the same when you look at it from a sort of nuts-to-bolts type of equation. Mm -hmm. the, the issue with the 215 program was whether or not the telephone companies should give over their metadata, which was who you called, who called you, how long the time of call was, and pretty much that was basically it, maybe where you were calling from uh, in some instances, but never the substantive content. Now, it could be held to be unconstitutional because, as Judge Leon, who was the only judge that said it uh, to be, was there have been a lot of changes in the last 37 years since 1979 when the Supreme Court ruled. Now, I wouldn't be surprised or have a problem if the Supreme Court ruled differently, but I think the reasoning, for example, in Judge Leon's decision uh, doesn't work until the Supreme Court actually renders that decision. Let me ask you, this is somewhat waxing philosophic about legal stuff, which uh, I'm putting on the spot here, but the Supreme Court... I guess John Roberts is the youngest member of the court, and he's in his late 50s, perhaps. I don't know if Kagan's younger or not. But they're, they're all relatively elder. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is fantastic, but she's, what, 107 or something like that. So the likelihood that they're going to be up-to-date on the latest technology, up-to-date on the latest uh, issues of metadata and PRISM and what the NSA is doing... Um, just same argument with members of Congress who just don't have the kind of cyber background, for instance, and things like that. How do you how do you keep a Supreme Court? How do you balance the wisdom to be a member of the United States Supreme Court and understanding law and constitutionality with these technological changes that are affecting so much of the last fifteen years in the war on terror? Everything again from NSA wiretapping to torture to. Uh, issues of things we'll talk about in a second, the idea of using drone strikes and the legality of that. Um, these are not necessarily the most hip people when it comes to technology. Uh, do you see a problem there, or is that something that can be solved by you know, their staff, their aides, you know, clerks? You know, and this is exactly what Judge Leon was arguing with respect to the composition of the Supreme Court in 1979, which was actually, of course, older than I imagine the judges, the justices who are on the court now, and, you know, very much a very old white boy type community back then. But at the same time, I look at it, and, and let's, we'll take it twofold. One, the court in 1979, which upheld that the collection of metadata was constitutional, notwithstanding the absence of a warrant, versus the justices who are on the court now in 2016. And what I always point out to, to the students, because I, I teach this at the graduate level, what I always point out to them is, all right, let's look at 1979. You had a very old crew of justices. I get it. But is the notion of what 
is at issue with respect to surveillance, technologically, collection of metadata, whether it's on a singular scale in the Smith case or a grand scale in the current NSA situation under 215, is that something that is really so novel to everyone that they can't comprehend it being done? And I look at a few factors back in 1979 in particular, where we don't have, obviously, the Internet. We don't have the wide-scale communication. We're somewhat more naive in general. But yet, the book 1984 by George Orwell, which talks all about these types of issues of mass surveillance and government intervention and the lack of privacy of individuals, was written in 1949. And I dare say, and I'm speculating, I bet you all the justices on the bench in 1979 had read 1984. The movie 2001 A Space Odyssey had been issued in 1968. Star Trek, which as far as I'm concerned answer, is the answer to every question that can be raised, was on air from 1966 to 1969. And in fact, much of what Star Trek put on the screen, on the small screen, technologically is real today. So I find it somewhat surprising that everybody doesn't think that justices could have some understanding. I had Star Wars came out in 1977. So, I mean, all these things that had come out in science fiction. Um, we look at the justices now. Yes, okay, they're older, but the Internet's been around for 20 years. I imagine most, if not all of them, are on email. You know, they read newspapers. They're, of all the justices probably in our history, the most outspoken that they go, they're not only writing books, but they're going on the speaking circuit, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So, and they have obviously law clerks that are going to be much younger than they are from in their late 20s, probably into the, possibly into their 50s, depending on who they want to choose. So I think they will garner enough information from social media themselves and movies and televisions and pop culture, uh, as well as the education by their law clerks, their families, and the opposing counsel on both sides that would be arguing the case, that they'll have a, a good understanding. Um, you know, look, they handle, as all judges do, and this is why I'm always somewhat actually in opposition, not even somewhat, actually in opposition to the government on national security grounds with respect to federal courts and the inability, so some of the courts say, that they can adjudicate national security issues because they don't have the expertise. And I look at areas of the law where they render decisions like medical malpractice or tort liability on situations, drug liability, on, on matters that they'll have no knowledge of whatsoever in, in the slightest. I mean, no issues that we would ever learn in law school or as lawyers, and yet they're called upon to render expert decisions, judicial decisions in rendering how that decision will go. So I don't see any reason why they can't handle any type of national security-related issue uh, when it's... Now, they may not understand some of the technology, but like I said before, you know, they, they've already indicated they're hesitant at times as technology is advancing, which is far outpacing the law. And I think most people don't realize much of what was 
modified in the Patriot Act post 9-11 was really just to bring the act, and actually it wasn't just the act, it was numerous statutes, to bring them up to date with technological advances Mm -hmm. because everything that was in the statutes did not take into account the Internet and, and other type of technology. And, and that is just going so quickly, and the Congress is so partisan to be ineffective at times that it can't keep up. So the government, rightly or wrongly, and, and we can certainly argue wrongly at times, is moving at such a pace in a law enforcement intelligence standpoint to outpace what the law gives its, it authority to do, and then that means we need to have to bring have the ability to go into court and challenge right. it, and hopefully the courts would... would uphold the constitutionality in or or say that it's not constitutional and say you know uphold the protection of the constitution against the face of new technology that hasn't yet been authorized by law i asked brad about this also and i'm wondering what your perspective is um we uh we had a, a temporary exhibit in the lobby from some time ago morton storm who was this danish uh ex-jihadist who worked for cia and he was intimately involved with anwar al-awlaki which uh, for those now who know the story, if they didn't before, he was an American citizen who was killed by an American launched drone strike, although, of course, the CIA hasn't yet acknowledged that they do drone strikes, but he was killed by an American drone strike, as was Samir Khan, another American who hadn't, you know, changed to become a citizen of any other country, but uh, he had denounced his American citizenship, and they'd been killed without a trial, without a jury of their peers, without a judge giving them a death sentence or a jury giving them a death sentence. And this was justified by the Justice Department, by Eric Holder, uh, Barack Obama is the one that ordered it. Uh, and Brad did a very good job, I thought, in kind of laying out some of the legal foundations for it. Regardless, I, I still don't feel 100% comfortable with the idea that one person, in this case the President of the United States, with Justice Department advice and, and people letting him know what the law was, and granted, the President, a constitutional scholar himself, has the ability to say, this American citizen, I think he's a bad guy, I think he's... There's an imminent threat, whatever the hell that means. He needs to die. Uh, that seems somewhat unprecedented to me. That seems somewhat... I, I hate to use the word slippery slope because I hate when other people use it. Um, what is the justification for that? Well, I think you are right to be concerned. And there is a white paper that was written by the Justice Department explaining its legal rationale as to why it believed the president has the authority to order, essentially, an assassination. Although it's, con- it's, it's placed in the context of war, and, this, and that's a separate debate, of course, about, well, you know, does Congress need to authorize war, etc., with the, the use of military force that came out of 9-11, uh, which is definitely subject to criticism as to whether it still exists in, in the current climate. The white paper was leaked, so people can find it online. Uh, it is also a topic I teach about in a, in a class. And I do think there are some legitimate concerns and questions as to the analysis that goes into what information is presented to the President of the United States to make this determination. So the notion of a slippery slope is, is definitely something to be concerned about at all times. Uh, same as with the 215 or Section 702 or 12333 executive order collection of, of information from mass collection, etc. Uh, the question comes down to oversight and, of course, legality. 
I think we're in a unique situation with some of these folks. I think some of the problems are that we don't know all the information, obviously, that the president is considering. At least we can say and see to such a, at least to this point, it's been used sparingly. It's been used methodically. It's been used very much in a pinpoint fashion, which isn't to say there are not collateral damage, meaning collateral deaths. But at the same time, there is an aspect of, of warfare mm. that exists with these individuals. It, it, it's not like, and this is where certainly my concern would be that I've raised with respect to the white paper analysis. If we look, for example, we look back to a domestic terrorist, Eric Rudolph, of a number of years ago, who, as far as we all know, perpetrated the 1996 Atlanta bombing rather than Richard Jewell, yeah. who had originally been unfortunately accused and Rudolph was hiding in the mountains for a while down in the Carolinas and couldn't be found and it raises some questions if you read the white paper could we have taken we didn't have drones at the time that I know of but if we had a drone now and he was there now and part of the analysis is well are there alternative options to essentially going in there and either capturing or killing the individual with a strike force or whatever it might be. And if you've got someone like Alawaki, who was obviously entrenched in a country very hostile to us in Yemen, that would have been difficult to get to, would have been difficult to have people, Americans that were in there that wouldn't have been unnoticed. There likely would have been casualties on our side. Uh, same thing with Rudolph as to where he was hiding. So could we just take a drone and do a some sort of bomb buster into the mountainside collateral damage would be a lot of deer uh, and raccoons and squirrels I imagine but Rudolph would have been eliminated uh, now he ended up being eliminated in a firefight if I remember correctly I don't I don't know if anyone I don't think anybody got hurt actually mm. beyond Rudolph uh, thankfully uh, but there there is analysis there that is questionable and I, I think to some point in time with anything with national security, we, we have to take some posture of, is there any bit of trust in the government? Which doesn't mean you don't question them. You don't criticize them. You don't challenge them. There was a legal challenge, actually, to the placement of Alawaki on this list, this targeted list, because they announced it in advance. Right. Uh, which I guess you could say at least put him on notice, you know, if he wanted to turn himself in, which obviously he wasn't going to do. But his father, who's here in the United uh, not in here in the United I don't think the father's here, but his father brought a lawsuit here in the United States by American lawyers to challenge it and it was decided he didn't have standing as I recall to be able to bring that challenge so there was no substantive decision and then I think there was a lawsuit even after he was killed for like the wrongful death of his son but I, I don't remember if that suit had a legal resolution but it would have a, a, a tremendous amount of impediments from a legal standpoint let me, let me push back a little bit because um, it seems like some of the arguments that you're making for this white paper and for uh, kind of the legal ramifications of the, the targeted killing are the same arguments that people like John Yu made in his analysis of the enhanced interrogation program. And I, look, I, as a, the listeners know, I'm left of center. And many people like me, when these targeted killing white papers came out, were like, Oh, I guess Eric Holder kind of makes a good argument and you know that. And of course, when the John Ewan Hitch interrogation were like, burn it to the ground, you know, we don't believe any of this crap. Maybe it's some partisanship. Um, but it seems like a lot of the same arguments are being made. And, 
you know, because we're lefties, I accepted one and, and hated the other. Uh, where is, I guess this is the slippery slope argument again, it's when you're justifying certain things because of war, because of terrorism, or because of, we don't want, need to prevent another 9-11 to bring it all back to what we started talking about in the beginning. Uh, are these continued legal analysis now by a Republican administration and by a liberal Democratic administration and probably will carry on to whoever is president next? Are we, is there no going back at this point? Now we're just accepting more and more. Yeah, no, it's ironic. Even as I listen to myself, I, I sound like I'm this conservative legal advocate, and I'm by no means not. Uh, I'm probably, if anything, le- dead center or left of center, I, I imagine, on most things. But I've, I've adopted a very healthy national security attitude after doing this for almost 25 years and seeing things on the inside. And that's never working for the federal government. That's o- always actually challenging the federal government, but I have a view, viewpoint, that I think uh, it has insight that I don't see from a lot of my colleagues. I don't agree with John Yu's legal memorandums. I thought they were far excessive, and I never would have signed off on them. They were, they were sort of open books and clean slates that the president can do anything that he, he or she wants. Ironically, what I tell a lot of people, and what I've complained about in the last eight years, is in my world, in my national security world, and more precisely, my national security legal world, very little changed from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. There are some nuances here and there that were scaled back that I think deserve to be. But in large part, the Obama administration merely continued much of what the Bush administration set in place. In fact, on the issue of drone strikes, the Obama administration escalated what the Bush administration had set into place. And that could be a completely separate discussion of why that came about. So I, I do think that there are, like I said, some real hard hitting questions that can be asked and criticisms based on just looking at specifically the drone policy or we can broaden it to the no-fly policy, the terrorist watch list, all these other issues that involve individual civil liberties. But at the same time, I think what we look at, and I think what, has, what is different from how it's been utilized historically, going back in our history 200-plus years, is the magnitude of the scope of the application and the oversight now, I don't think there's enough oversight, and that goes a lot to the dysfunctionalism of Congress. Some of the judges at least have been stepping up to the plate to replace what Congress has omitted in its oversight capabilities, although it comes up every once in a while where they'll take a stand, whether it's partisan or not. But we have at least not seen that we know of publicly abuse of many of these policies that were put in place that we could still question in a healthy manner. We're not hearing or seeing, which doesn't mean it's not happening, but we just don't know, of aggressive drone strikes everywhere that are indiscriminately just killing people left and right, right. As, as our enemies. We are not seeing mass detention of people. We are not seeing mass surveillance in the sense of seizures of, of data. Meaning data, substantive data, not not metadata, right. and and you could even argue 
uh, as, as many do, uh, I think, uh, legitimately, that there's, even with the mass surveillance programs, which have now been scaled back, of course, and that's fine, that there's been sufficient oversight. We haven't heard of abuses. I mean, nothing that has come out of the Snowden disclosures have disclosed, whether by him or by the journalists who have access to this information, that there was any abuse by the NSA of the program. And there are a handful of analysts who are checking out ex-girlfriends, but you're going to have that anywhere. You have I mean, that at every level yeah. of local, state, and federal government constantly, that they do that. And it's improper, inappropriate, unlawful at times. And as far as we know, again, every instance where that was caught, those individuals were either disciplined and sometimes prosecuted. There was a guy at DHS who was using a drone to monitor his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend. They caught him. He was prosecuted. I want to ask you about, we talked a little about whistleblowing, and one thing the Obama administration has done that was taking it a next step from the Bush administration, and now they're now notorious, I guess, for being the administration in history that has prosecuted more leakers and whistleblowers than, I guess, every other administration combined. Now, obviously, it's much easier to do it now. Uh, it's it's much more public now. Um, but my, my, my kind of segue to the real question I want to ask is, uh, people like Snowden, people like other whistleblowers, and let's even expand this to terrorists themselves, people like Zernayev Brothers, the one, well, the one that survived. Is there any chance in the environment that we're in today, even 15 years removed from 9-11, that any of these people would get a fair trial in the United States? I know it's a weighted question. I can't imagine Snowden's going to have a jury of his peers in a fair trial, obviously because a lot of the stuff he, uh, he'd be talking about would be classified. It would be a very specific kind of trial. But, I mean, Zernayev, yes, he gets prosecuted, but I think he, we walked in the door prosecuted. You know, somebody at that level doesn't seem to stand a chance. And, and I think that's, my opinion, is that's, that's a, a, a symptom of the environment in the last 15 years. Do you disagree? Do you see a different, uh, different kind of attitude uh, here in the United States? I mean, I know if I was on the Zernayev trial, I'd be like, guilty. Like, you haven't even heard of the opening statements yet, guilty. It's just kind of just the way we are now, I think. Well, I think that answer to that question will depend on what you believe and how you interpret the term fair trial to be. For those who are diehard Snowden supporters, not saying that that's you, but those, and I know you're not, for those that are who will say, look, there's no such thing as a public interest defense, meaning he can't present to the jury his reasons, his motives, the good, whatever that might be, that has come out of his disclosure to impact whether or not he's guilty or innocent. I look at it, and, and that's true, he can't do it because the law doesn't permit it, and I don't think it should and because I, I don't think it could. There's no way I think a jury could assess what the public interest is for a national security disclosure because it's so subjective. Right. That said, to me, a fair trial does not mean, as it does to many Snowden people, that he would be acquitted. You right. can have a fair right. trial and be convicted. There's a process that's in place. Now, you may not like that process. And I think with uh, the brother in, in Boston, as I recall for, for that, I think, in fact, his, his defense counsel essentially acknowledged his guilt, and they focused only on the sentencing mm -hmm. to avoid the death penalty versus life imprisonment. And that would be the same thing with Snowden, not, not death penalty or life imprisonment, but on the notion of that's when he would have the opportunity to present 
information as to his motive and the public benefit that might have been derived, and there is some for sure, to say, you know, he should not be subjected to a lengthy prison sentence. In fact, that happened in the Manning trial as well. And, and indeed, his sentence, though people will criticize the length of it, it was lower or lesser than what it could have been in part, no doubt, because of that. Now, I think the Obama administration gets a real bum rap on this notion of can whistleblowers have a fair process, uh, the prosecution of leakers, uh, which not all of whom were whistleblowers, right. which is another thing that people yeah, there's important equate. distinction there. Yeah, not not every whistleblower is a leaker. Not every leaker is a whistleblower. And having worked on several of those cases as the defense counsel or the or the employment lawyer, uh, I worked on at least three of the cases. Actually, wasn't one Jeffrey Sterling? One Jeffrey of them? Sterling was my client for over a decade. John Kiriakou was mm-hmm. my client at one point, not during his criminal trial, but I represented one of the journalists during his criminal trial who he leaked the information to, and I represented a witness in the APAC case of prosecuting Wiseman and Rosen, mm-hmm. uh, which were APAC, American Israeli Public Affairs Committee uh, case, which all of these cases, in fact, the APAC case, the, the charges were thrown out or, or dropped because of issues with the prosecution. Uh, the Drake case, the charges yeah. were significantly dropped with the issue of uh, overreaching. Now, I don't agree that Drake should have been prosecuted in the first place, but that, that's another story with it. But as you look at a lot of these cases, the, the biggest issue why these people were prosecuted was technological. It, it wasn't this war against whistleblowers, which isn't to say that these individuals were not disliked significantly from within the intelligence community because having represented them I can tell you they were vehemently disliked and I'm sure that was a motivating factor but they got caught and and prosecuted because of technology that being a significant difference than it had been in any years before most of them used email to communicate Almost all of them used email to communicate, and they were all caught as a result. Now, let's look back to the prosecution of one of the most famous whistleblowers, Daniel Ellsberg. And Ellsberg, his prosecution was thrown out. Why? Because the trial was fair, and the government was found to have violated the law in breaking into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office— And it tainted the charges and motive of the prosecution, and the charges were thrown out. So, yes, the system actually can work. And I probably would say he would have been found guilty, I imagine, because uh, he admitted he did right. what he did. Exactly. Uh, obviously, now, who knows what a sentence would have been in 1972 uh, when the trial was going on or so, 72, 73, whatever it was. Uh, but I do think that there, you know, there, there are mechanisms for these defendants to get a fair trial and present their case. It might not be ideal. There is a statute called the Classified Information Procedures Act, which has been used in cases such as Oliver uh, North mm-hmm. back in the late 80s uh, to have his charges dismissed because of what's called gray mail, essentially softly blackmailing the government that, well, if you want to prosecute me, you're going to have to reveal this classified information. Right. Uh, and the government decided, no, I'm not going to do that. And, in fact, in several Iran-Contra cases, they dismissed the charges because of that. But in looking at the whistleblowers, part of the issue is, well, what did they do in advance of going public to try and make their case 
through the right channels and you know can have a debate as to what the right channels are and how effective they are but the, the bottom line is I think to everyone that uh, the equation or the equivalent of a fair trial is not necessarily the individuals found innocent you can have a fair trial and be found guilty too how do you how do you foresee the Snowden episode playing out as far as ending, I mean, he's not going to get pardoned. It's, no. it's almost certain that's not going to happen he, by the bombing. He's not going to get a pardon, and I agree with the Washington Post, which editorial board just wrote the other day, that he's not deserving of a pardon, at least at this time. And it's primarily because what no one wants to talk about, and especially his supporters, that he leaked information that far exceeded that which is now the subject of the Oliver Stone film right. and what everybody holds up as, well, thank you for doing that, meaning the domestic surveillance programs. He revealed a tremendous amount of information that, as far as I'm concerned, harmed national security uh, and, at the very least, certainly was not a justification under any whistleblower statute, regulation, or directive, or executive order that would ever fall into that category, whether you want to think it was harmful to national security or not. So I actually support what... Robert Litt, who is the current general counsel of the ODNI, the Director of National Intelligence, what he proposed not too long ago, which was rejected by Snowden and at least by his lawyers, and that was, look, we'll give you credit for the disclosure of the domestic surveillance program, because definitely reasonable minds can differ on that. There have been courts that have ruled in your favor. There has been public outcry. There have been some congressional amendments or reining it in so we won't charge you with any of those provisions you will plead guilty to one felony count of whatever you want to say disclosure of classified information mishandling classified information there's lots of charges that can be brought right. you plead guilty to one charge and you're sentenced to three to five years and you can then add into part of that just like it was for john kiriaku some of it served in minimum security federal prison and the other part is served for home detention uh, and some manipulation or modification to that. So he'd probably be out in a year and a half, two years of, of prison time. He obviously couldn't disclose further classified information. Anything he writes would be subject to review, just like Jeff Sterling, uh, who just wrote something online, which was obviously subject to review by the government. And he was, at least what I can tell, able to say everything he wanted to say without weighing in on the substance of it. Uh, and he'd have to share information with the U.S. government as to what exactly did he take and what did he do with it and what, ha what has been going on, obviously, in the three years that he's been exiled in Russia. Right. What about the Snowden-Greenwald argument that Snowden didn't actually reveal any information, that Glenn Greenwald and Laurie Poitras revealed all the information, that Snowden just handed it over and said, do with it. Does that hold any water at all legally? I know in my mind it's nonsense, but in a legal sense, does that hold any water? No. In a legal sense, it's even more than okay. nonsense. I think just on its face, it's just absurd to make that kind of argument. But, you know, look, I equate it to this. Person X steals a gun, gives the gun to person Y, person Y shoots person Z and kills them. Legally, Person X is liable as well for the death of Person Z. Uh, that's a pretty good. I mean, that's about from I mean, all the Law and Order I've watched. That's a great analogy. Yeah, I mean, there's no and Law. I tell you, <laughs> Law and Order answers a lot of questions yeah. too because it's written by lawyers yeah. who research the law. The only thing that's unrealistic is obviously the pace at which yeah. everything happens and some of the policy issues. But legally, actually, there's a lot of credibility to Law and Order episodes. 
Let me ask you about one final, I, I consider unresolved legal issue, and that's Guantanamo Bay. That's the, the people in limbo there under no, they're not prisoners of war, they're not capable of being tried here in the United States, because Congress, certainly the Republicans, will never allow it to happen. If they did, uh, there's another fair trial question. You know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed try, being tried at the you know, federal court in Miami or somewhere. I can't imagine that would be something that could be considered fair, even, even using the definition where you push back on me about a fair trial. Uh, is there any... Are they going to die in Guantanamo? Or are we gonna, just going to ship them off to some other country? Or is there, is there an end to this? Because it's been eight years since that candidate Barack Obama promised to close Guantanamo right away. And it looks like either President Clinton or President Trump's going to have this problem going on for many, many more years. Do you see any, any way to, to end this problem? Yeah, I, I am very troubled by the indefinite detention of these individuals, the high-value detainees down at, at Gitmo. You know, the Obama administration has really processed a lot of people to be released, and from a policy perspective, you can make some arguments that, look, some of them have returned to the battlefield. Well, you know, some criminals who get pardoned or are commuted sentences or just serve their sentence and are released, they go back to committing crimes too, so I'm not sure what you can do about that. But the indefinite detention is a problem. And I am one of those who I, I do believe that our federal criminal court system can adequately handle these types of cases. I don't think it makes a difference that they're high-value detainees. Now, the problem comes into, obviously, how they were treated at different times. Right. And this could go to the fair, if you want to talk about fairness of court proceedings, this could really be a factor. Well, you think the waterboarding, that, Right, you think that anything that, any information they gave was what fruit of the the rotten tree or I'm, right. I'm making up stuff It's now. going to be a, a, a major problem. You know, I represented uh, the Daniel Pearl Project out of Georgetown for a number of years, which was run by friends, personal friends of Daniel Pearl, who was the reporter killed by Muhammad, Khalid, uh, Muhammad, Khalid sorry, Sheikh Mohammed. Sorry, uh, yeah, uh, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, he, at least by his own admission that he was the one holding the knife that, that killed Danny Pearl. And... So I have no love loss, obviously, for KSM, and you know he's admitted to being, you know, essentially one of the masterminds. Uh, but at the same time, our system requires a trial, and I do have problems with the nature of the military tribunal. I have problems that they have taken so long. I have problems that it has been proven because I I know some of the defense counsel, one of whom works in my law firm now, uh, actually for KSM, prior Army counsel that the CIA was controlling some of the courtrooms, that the CIA was monitoring conversations with defense counsel, that the FBI turned a translator linguist on one of the defense teams to be a, in, an informant for them. Uh, there are a lot of problems with what's, with what's been going on down in Gitmo. And what people, a lot of people probably don't know, it's historical, you know, interestingly, in the aftermath of the Lincoln assassination in 1865, the first group of those who participated in the assassination plot, David Harold, Lewis Payne, they were tried by a military tribunal. And, of course, uh, the Mary Surratt, mm -hmm. the first woman executed by the federal government, they were all prosecuted by a military tribunal, which certainly in today's standards was not fair. If you look at it, they were all convicted and executed. Uh, not and some of them were sentenced to other imprisonment terms and later released. But in 1867, Mary Surratt's son, John Surratt, who was part of the plot, 
was captured. He had fled overseas. He was captured, brought back to the United States, and tried here in D.C. Now, because it's two years after the Civil War, by a civilian court, and he was acquitted hmm. because of the differences in the two systems. Right. So I think people do have some concerns in the government that given the treatment that some of these high-value detainees, particularly because of the waterboarding, how a civilian court would deal with that, although, frankly, a military court should deal with it the same way because the Armed Forces Manual and the Army Manual of how integration is, you know, is not in favor of waterboarding because we prosecuted the Japanese for waterboarding right. our people. And it's not in nuanced. World War II. It's pretty straightforward. Yes. And, and uh, so, you know, I also think that President Obama learned very quickly that the incredible power of the presidency is not vested in one person. It is vested in the office. And even that office has its limitations, which is why Gitmo is still open eight years later, uh, which is actually a very interesting check and balance. And I, I don't like the result, quite frankly, but uh, I, I like the process that if you believe in separation of powers between the branches, that's a perfect example. The motive you can question as to right. why it happened, but at least demonstration-wise of the separation of the three branches is a positive thing to look at. But, you know, something needs to be done. And, you know, going back to what I said earlier about I thought the Obama administration is pretty much an extension of the Bush administration. I don't think either a Trump or Clinton administration is going to be any different uh, with respect to national security or Gitmo uh, or the like. Uh, it's probably going to be uh, a continuation. And in just swinging and closing kind of back around to some of these issues we've been discussing, I tell you, one of the things that's concerned me about the Obama administration in particular, because I worked with all of, you know, a great number of these lawyers when they were in private practice throughout the eight years of the Bush administration. I mean, this town, you know, is a revolving right. door. They go back and forth. And so, I mean, I dealt with Eric Holder when he was just a lawyer in a law firm. And, and now I deal with John Yu when he's just an academic. And I know because I would talk to them and read their writings that many of the lawyers now in the Obama administration who wrote this white paper on drones being used to kill Americans overseas, who adopted certain policies on Gitmo, who adopted the no-fly list policies, and the, you know, everything we've been talking about, that many of them opposed at least the extent to which the Bush administration was advocating it back in 2001 to 2009. And they're, they're good people. You know, they're, they're genuine people. They're smart lawyers on both sides, for sure. And it raises some concerns in my mind is, what the hell were they told once they got into the administration at an intelligence level that we don't know right. that has made them change their minds? Is there something that we don't know that is so dire out there that these lawyers who were very much left of center in challenging the Bush administration then adopted many of the same policies? There's an incredible amount of trust that we have to put in them that they're not just being seduced by the power of the White House, that they actually know something that is you know, make, forcing them to make a difficult decision, but one that they're not taking lightly. Very much so, and, and that's where we need the legislative branch to conduct proper oversight. We need the judiciary to be able to hear these national security cases, whether it's classified or not. And, you know, to some extent, we obviously need the fourth estate, the media, to do this, and whistleblowers to do the same. But we need it to be done 
lawfully and in balance. All of this, I think, at the end of the day is a balancing test. I think Glenn Greenwald has gone way over to one side in the balancing test. I think papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post continually balance. Sometimes they come out on the right side, sometimes they come out on the wrong side, but I think at least their agenda is for the public interest, and I might challenge that for some of the other journalists. But the same has to be said about the whistleblowers and those who have a legal obligation to protect national security slash classified information who generally don't know the whole story because of compartmentalization. Snowden did not, as his boss recently came forward in saying, Snowden did not have access nor participate in most of the programs he ended up releasing. He read the documents like everybody else Mm -hmm. did, and he came to a conclusion. Now, some of those conclusions may be wrong because you didn't see the whole picture. Some of them may be right. Some of the suppositions could be right. It really depends, and that's where the dangers come when you grab so much information, don't read it, and just dump it on some journalist who has no background whatsoever in intelligence or national security for them to decide what's in the best national security interest of the country. We need more balance, and I think some of the good things that came out of Snowden's disclosures, for example, that the, the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, now has an advocate to balance against the government. Right. That's yeah. a very positive development in favor of civil liberties. This is because the FISA courts were basically like a grand jury where you were just talking with no defense whatsoever there to advocate for you. So at least there is some balance there now. Yeah, absolutely. Now we'll see how the yeah. lawyers who are, there's five of them, I believe, who have the ability to advocate before the court. We'll see uh, as time goes by whether they think the process has been fair. Now, this does not mean that the warrants will not be issued. Right. Again, this comes down to what people think of, oh, you can only have a fair trial if Snowden is acquitted. No. If, and there's an advocate who argues before the court, the Fisk court, and the court still issues the warrant, the benefit of it is that the court will hold the government's feet to the fire, and the advocacy by the independent lawyer has required the government to bring forth additional information in order to justify properly that it needs the warrant. That's the process. Right, not just a rubber stamp anymore. We'd like to thank our great sponsor, ZipRecruiter, for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first and post your jobs for free. Well, Mark Zaid is the managing partner of the law offices of Mark Zaid. He is all over TV. If you want to know how ridiculously young he looks, it's, again, very annoying. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Again, listeners, uh, three years ago, you can check out the other podcast that Mark did, talking a lot more about Snowden. Um, Thanks for taking the time. Anytime, Vince. Always my pleasure. The Spy Museum. Everybody should visit it at the old place and the new one. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL SpyCast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.